and I'll pray and we'll get into our message this morning. Dear God, we thank you for each person here. And Lord, we're here not just to connect with each other, uh, not just as a routine or a habit, but Lord, to experience you. Lord, we, wanna, we want that vertical relationship in our life. We want that connection with you. You are our creator, our redeemer, our provider, our ruler. Lord, I pray that we would be people marked by reverence for you and that we would walk in your character, that our lives would reflect the fruit of your Holy Spirit. Lord, this is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it's interesting to see what people say as some of their last words. Winston Churchill, uh, right before he died, according to one source I read, said, you know, he was the great leader in the Second World War of England. He said, I'm bored with it all, and then died. Frank Sinatra, the famous American singer who sang, I did it my way, according to a source I read, said, I'm losing, right before he died. That was his statement. Um, I'm trying to think of what I want to say. I'm at the moment, the front runner is, I told you I was sick, but I, I don't know, I'm working on it. Now, we don't know that this is the last thing he said, but the book of Ecclesiastes was written at the end of King Solomon's life. And he had lived, let's just say, a very interesting life. As a young man, he was very devoted to the Lord. And when he knew he was going to be king, God gave him this incredible opportunity of, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon chose wisdom, which showed, I think, that he had a little bit of it already, right? And he chose wisdom, and God was very gracious with him. And he received not just wisdom, but peacetime during his reign. It was a golden age for the Jews in many ways when it came to financial and material prosperity. But Solomon made serious mistakes. He was not wholehearted in his following of the Lord. His connection with the Lord was weakened by all these wives that he took on. And while most were probably political alliances with other nations, I can't help but when you look at how many wives and concubines he had, it, it honestly feels like the Playboy Mansion of the Old Testament. Here's somebody who really went astray for quite a bit of time in his life. But at the end of his life, it appears that he returned to God. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is a piece of that. And he goes down all these dead ends and explores them in that book. Things like wealth, prestige, fame, lust, pleasure, even human wisdom. And his summary, which he uses the word like 38 times in the book, is vanity. Or meaningless. And he says these are dead ends. And so he settles in on a slogan or a mantra or a bit of wisdom to help us on how to live. Here's somebody who had the money and the opportunity to kind of go down all those paths that our culture says will make us happy, will make us complete, will make us whole. And he found it to be meaningless to be vanity. And here's how he sums up the matter in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. He says this, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I think it's interesting that, according to tradition, the Jews, when they would read this particular passage, they didn't like to end on this idea of God's judgment. That felt a little negative, and so they would flip the order and read that first and then end with the verse 13 instead. Because I think there's something in us that's a little bit allergic to the fullness of who God is. We want to edit God. We want to cut off the sections that we don't like. And I think that God is calling us to something different. This passage says so. We are to fear God. We are to revere him. I want to use the word awe today, A-W-E, as an acrostic, just to give a little sense of what Solomon recommends, what God is calling us to when it comes to living our life. The A in awe is for attitude, an attitude of respect and reverence, an attitude of reverence and respect, whichever way you want to say that. I think we are called, in a sense, to be blown away by God. We are hardwired for awe. The problem is that many of us have wonder or awe or amazement at all these other things and not God. But this passage says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, we are to fear God. And fear means reverent awe. And Proverbs 9.10, Solomon tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so this is how we begin to be wise. This is how we begin to live well, to have that reverent fear of God. And I don't know about you, but I've spent my entire life in the American church and I think, to be honest, it's lacking for many of us. That reverent fear of God, that respect And I don't know where you experience awe. Maybe it's out in creation. Maybe that's when you feel closest to God. You go moose hunting, but there's times where you see the northern lights, or there's times where you're just alone looking at the stars, and you get a sense of how small we are and how great and vast God is. Maybe you watch a nature show and it goes out into space and talks about the vastness of the planets and the distances and the stars and all of this. And you look at that and you're like, God made that. And all of a sudden when you pray, you're not quite as quick to say, God, I think you should do this and this and this. And you're like, maybe I should step back in awe, in reverent fear. And just say, God, you know better. We're to have this attitude of reverence and respect. I, I feel that way about the Bible. We just, uh, we just saw the idea of the prophecies. The Bible is this incredible, remarkable book. I love books, but no book touches the Bible. It's actually a library of books. This is a book that's written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,100 years, and yet there is this miraculous unity in those books. It is an incredible book. It, is, it, is, it has woven through it um, prophecies. We just saw one. And a lot of the prophecies that we have a tendency to emphasize at Christmas time, you know, they're back in Isaiah. We're talking 700 years from when the prophet spoke to when the prophecy was fulfilled. 
You know how impressive that is? Watch a news show. Watch a political commentator, and they try to predict an election or what's going to happen, or an economist predicting what the, the, what the economy is going to do. Or watch a weather person, and they try to predict it. I wish I could be that wrong that often, right? The Bible is this remarkable book, and because it's God's very word, we have this reverence and respect for it. I think of some of the prophecies, like I can't imagine being an Old Testament Jew and, and going, okay, so it says that, that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It also says he's coming up out of Egypt, and it also said he's a Nazarene. How does that work? That doesn't make sense. But when you look at the story, he's born in Bethlehem because there was a census. So he had to go back to the, um, Joseph and Mary had to go back to their lineage, their hometown. And then because of wicked King Herod, they had to flee to Egypt. And once he died, then they come back out of Egypt. So they come up out of Egypt and then they go and live in Nazareth. And so you see all those prophecies are fulfilled And it's absolutely remarkable when you see this. God is the author of creation. He is the author of our lives. And he's the author of the scripture. And we should have this attitude of reverence and respect when we think of him. And we need to have that full view of God. Not just the parts that we're most drawn to. I'm going to date myself in this. But before there were virtual reality goggles which my teenager likes, there was what was called Viewmaster. I'm curious, how many of you remember Viewmaster? Remember? All right, there's, there's enough of us. The rest of you just hang in there. So it's this little red thing, and, and it has little pictures, and, and you click through them, and the idea is that, you know, when you look with both eyes, you're kind of overlapping, and it looks like it's 3D. But if you just looked with one eye, it didn't look 3D. And... Here's the deal. I think many of us want to look at just part of God. We want to be his editors. We want to make him politically correct. I appreciate what Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, and he says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. You know, I've done probably at this point, maybe a couple hundred individual spiritual plans with people here at Journey over the years. And I'll often ask, what's an attribute of God that you're drawn to? And what's an attribute of God that maybe is off-putting to you? And I've never, you know, an attribute that you're drawn to, I've never had anybody say, the sternness of God. But to understand God, it's like two blades of a pair of scissors for it to be effective, for it to cut. To, for us to understand who God is, you have to see both sides of God, the parts that maybe we're really drawn to. Mercy, grace, compassion. And the parts that maybe are harder for us, righteousness, holiness, the judgment of God, the justice of God. To see him fully, to know him, you have to put it all together. You know, we do this in our marriages, in our friendships. There are always parts of the other person that we're really drawn to, and there's parts that we're not as drawn to. 
Now, in another person, they might actually be full-blown flaws. God has no flaws. We're just not often as drawn to one side of God as the other. We need to understand who he is fully. One of my favorite passages in the Hebrew scriptures is Isaiah chapter 6. Because here you have the prophet Isaiah, and he's in a vision, or he's literally, God has taken him to the throne room. Theologians argue about that. He's in the throne room of God. The hem of his garment is massive, which is an image of God as victor and all-powerful, because in ancient times, kings, when they conquered a king, they would cut off a section of the hem of their garment and sew it onto their own And so you have this image of God as conqueror, God as victor, God as all-powerful, God as sovereign. And here is this prophet, this probably one of the greatest, most moral men of his age, and he comes into the presence of God, and he is wrecked by it. He's like, I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, he's a prophet for heaven's sakes. But haven't you ever sinned with your mouth? Haven't you ever lied, stretched the truth, been deceptive, spoken in anger when you shouldn't have? And Isaiah's just a man like us. And in the holy, brilliant presence of God, he experienced the anguish of being a sinner. And he looks and he sees these angels and these angels have six wings and one set of wings is so they can fly and one set of wings covers their feet and one set of wings covers their face because they're in the brilliant presence of the Almighty. And I think too many of us, we just, we're not grasping Vertically, the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the weight of God. You know, if if I showed you a coin, if I gave you a dollar coin or a quarter, and one side of the coin had an image and the other side was just blank, you would be like, well, this is this counterfeit? Is this even worked? Is this coin, this doesn't look right. And yet sometimes we do that with God because we want to edit out. But we need to have an attitude of reverence for who he actually is. He is beyond us. He is above us. He is beyond what we can understand or explain. We have this tendency to think that I have to understand everything. It has to make sense to me. Not necessarily. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, uh, it says this. This is God speaking through the prophet. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Sometimes I'm amused at the thoughts of God compared to our own. I think of entering the promised land and here they go into the promised land. They cross through the Jordan. God has parted the waters at flood time so they can go into the promised land. There they are. And what does God tell them to do? He says, okay, Joshua, now's a good time. You're in enemy territory. You're at risk. Now's a good time to circumcise the entire army. That is not in the West Point playbook. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And yet, he just over and over again is like, I'm the Lord, and you're not. 
And then they come to this, you know, mighty city, Jericho. And God says, well, here's the plan. You're going to march around, you know, day after day. And then the final day, you're going to march a bunch of times. And then there's going to be a big shout, and I'm going to knock the walls down. And once again, can you imagine Joshua laying this down with his leaders? This is the plan, guys. Okay. But that's what they did. I think about Gideon, who the Jewish people had been oppressed by the Midianites. And it says that the armies of the Midianites were like the sand on the seashore. It's this massive army. And Gideon, you know, who's not really a most uh, incredibly courageous man, he's rather cowardly. And he's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. You know, he, he makes, he asks God to do several things with the fleece and all that. And so he goes, okay, I'll lead the army. And he puts out the word and thousands show up. And God goes, no, that army's way too big. And I think the point is because they would think that Gideon and the army actually did it, even though they still were outnumbered. He says, send away anybody who's afraid. Then he sets up a test, send those people away, gets them down to just a few hundred people. And I think the point is so that it's clear who gives the victory, who's in charge here, who's sovereign. And they have this great victory over their enemies. And we need to see that. When we step back and see the grandeur and the majesty of God, it allows us, God is greater. He is greater than our enemy, even a fallen angel like Satan. He is greater than any anti-God government that would persecute the church. We see this around the world. We may experience it here someday in the fullness. I hope not. He is greater than any addiction that may be wrecking your life or the life of someone you love right now. He is greater than your past that you struggle to walk away with. He is greater than anything in life that you face. And that is where we find hope. In the grandeur and the majesty, in the indescribable God that we serve. Job, who experienced more loss than almost anyone, in his book in the Bible, loses his kids, loses his wealth, loses his health. His marriage doesn't look real good. She tells him to curse God and die. I don't think that's going well. It's not a Hallmark movie. And here is Job clinging desperately to God, but grumping at God, yelling at God occasionally as he goes through this process. And finally, God shows up. And Job doesn't get answers. Job gets God. As a matter of fact, he gets God who puts him in his place. Says, Job, I have questions for you. And in essence, sit down and shut up. You're not God and I am. And you know, at the end of the story, that was enough for Job. He got a glimpse of the grandeur and the majesty of God. And it was enough. You know the concept of love languages. Many of you have read the book by Gary Chapman. It's pretty popular, you know, that the way you show love to other people, your spouse in particular. It might be service, it might be words of affirmation, that kind of thing. How do we show love to God? Well, I think awe helps us. That attitude of reverence and respect. The W is worship. And the final idea is everyday obedience. 
God feels loved by his people when we worship and we offer obedience. The word worship in English is a shortened form of the old word worthship, which means showing the worth that God has in our lives, showing the value, the importance of who he is to us. If you look at our passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 again, verse 14 specifically, for God will bring every deed into judgment. I think this points to worship because judge deserves worshiped. This is just one of his attributes, but this is one of the attributes. There's a lot going wrong in our culture right now, but if I had to put something on top of the list, it is this. People do not believe they will answer to a holy God at the end of their life. If you believe that, you live differently. And we need to understand that he is to be worshipped for all of his attributes, his holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his beauty and his majesty and his glory and his compassion and his grace. You know, when Jesus was on the earth... I love this scene of someone who's just like overwhelmed and they had to worship. There's this woman and they're at a place. The place they're at is Simon the leper's. He's, he's throwing, I think it's a Thanksgiving feast because Jesus has healed him because if you're still a leper, nobody's coming to your house. That's not how that worked, okay? So he's healed and he's grateful. So he invites Jesus and all these people to get together and they're celebrating and they're thankful for what Jesus done and this woman comes in and she just absolutely she just comes up to Jesus and she uh, breaks off this you know the top of her perfume and this perfume she anoints his head and pours it on his feet and uses her hair to to wipe his feet off and she she worships him with complete abandon and it's this beautiful scene that perfume, they said it would cost a working man a year's wages. That is one serious bottle of Chanel, right? And so she just worships him and gives him this gift, this precious gift, sheer abandon and worship. I love Psalm 42, 1 and 2, where you have this image. So imagine a deer that's run life, you know, predators after it's run and it's thirsty and it's panting. It says this, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Um, my God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There's this thirst. Are you thirsty for God to experience him? I was listening to a podcast and Louis Giglio was talking about he had gone to Asbury College down in Kentucky and they had what they called the Asbury Revival and I don't know the details of all of it but they, were, they had a worship service, it's a Christian school and it was student led and it just kept going. People didn't leave and it lasted for days and I think even weeks and, and Louis Giglio was there for part of it and he said, he goes, I don't know how to it, but he said, let me tell you something. He goes, I was there at midnight and I watched this senior citizen shuffle in to worship. He goes, when was the last time I saw that? He goes, never. 
He said, I watched a, a, a father with two little kids at one in the morning come in and find a place, try to find a place to sit and to pray and to worship and to sing. And he goes, he goes, he goes I don't know what I experienced in the Asbury revival. He said, but I'll say this. He goes, I saw hunger, hunger for God. Are we hungry for God? If we are, then we make it a priority to spend time with him alone and corporately. We listen. We pray. We study the word. We memorize the word. Do we have a hunger for God? The W is worship. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips that openly profess his name. As we understand who he is, that he is the great judge, we respond in worship. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the great white throne judgment. This is where God separates uh, the sheep from the goats. This is where God separates those who are lost and those who are saved. Matthew 25 is the sheep and the goats parable. But this is the idea of those who are followers of Christ go to heaven, go to the new heavens and the new earth, and those that are not are separated and cast off. They go to a place called hell. And then there's a second judgment for those who are Christians. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. It just means judgment seat of Christ. And this is where you go and Jesus sits down and looks at you and your life. And he looks at your gifting. And he looks at your opportunities. And he gives you an assessment with the lens of trying to reward. There's a positive spin to this. And he's looking and he sees those times that you were praying alone. He sees those times that you came and served somebody and got no attaboys. He sees those times where you made a difference in somebody's life who was difficult, who's kind of an extra grace required person. And he rewards you for that. Kind of an interesting image. And, in, you know, we see this in 1 Corinthians 3. We see it in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, this beam of seat of Christ where he's evaluating our work. He's evaluating our lives. One image is that he takes our lives and he tests it with fire. And whatever is beautiful and done with right motives and for the kingdom is, it, it comes through like gold or silver. But if it's bad motives or I just want to look good or if it's about me, then it burns up like hay or straw. And so part of why we worship is because he's the one we ultimately answer to. He is the judge. And we worship him. You know, even in our culture, I haven't been in a courtroom, thankfully, uh, for a long, long time. But on TV, when the judge comes in, people stand up. It's a respect thing. And so the ultimate judge, we stand up. We worship him. The E in awe is everyday obedience. I think God feels loved by our worship, also by our everyday obedience. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, our primary text again, says, fear God, keep his commandments. The most fitting response to God's incredible grace and mercy in our lives is him. General Patton in World War II, who was not an example of Christian virtue, so don't come correct me in the lobby. I'm aware of that. 
But General Patton, when he wanted to promote a guy, here's, here's what he said he did. He would get several candidates together, these officers, and it was a big promotion, and he would say, okay, here's your task, and he would tell them, go dig a, a trench that was like eight foot long, three feet wide, six inches deep. And these are, you know, high-ranking officers. And then he would kind of step back and just watch and try to, you know, step away so they weren't really even thinking about him being around and he said he would listen, you know, there'd always be one or two that are like, man, you know, somebody with lower rank should be digging this trench. Somebody else would start arguing, what's he going to do with this trench? Nothing I know in the military needs this trench. This doesn't make any sense. And then finally, there'd be one guy be like, look, I don't know why he needs a trench. Let's dig the trench. And they get the shovels and they go dig the trench. And he'd give the promotion to that guy because he understood obedience. We don't always understand everything God wants us to do, everything he leads us to do, but we are to obey. This is part of loving and respecting God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 6 says, observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. You know, one of the Lord's best was Job. Listen to what God says about Job to Satan, the fallen angel. He says this. This is actually what, in a sense, kind of got Job in trouble because God is bragging about him. Job 1.8. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. I mean, wow. There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's a person who's marked by obedience. He shuns evil. He's blameless and upright. He walks in holiness. Sin is an affront to a holy God. We tend to think of sin as, as no big deal. It's just brokenness or it's just a mistake. You know, in the Bible, sin is breaking the law. That's one way sin is talked about. Another way sin is talked about is like a bow and arrow, and you shoot an arrow at a bullseye, and you miss the bullseye. So you, you miss the mark. That's another way sin is talked about in the Bible. And so maybe, you know, okay, we're to love others, and, and I, I missed the mark. I didn't, you know, shove somebody down, but I didn't help them and love them well. I missed the mark. But the Bible also presents us as rebels. And so to use the bow and arrow image, we turn with the bow and arrow and we shoot it at the very heart of God. We are rebels who want to unseat him in our lives. And that is an affront to a holy and sovereign God. And so we are to be people of obedience I think of Caleb in the Old Testament when Israel was going to go into the promised land. They, they sent 12 spies. Two were good, Caleb and Joshua. And they came back and they gave a report of faith. We can do this because the Lord is with us. But I love the summary statement made about Caleb later. It says of Caleb that he served God wholeheartedly. Wow. If any of us deserve that in our obituary, that is a life well lived. Serve God wholeheartedly, marked by obedience. Beautiful summary. 
I also think of Daniel in the Old Testament. Here's Daniel. His people are being punished. They're dragged off. Daniel's dragged from his home, dragged from his family. He has potential. He must be bright. They notice in him great potential, and so they bring him into the king's service. He's going to be trained as a wise man, as an advisor. And Daniel, after experiencing the most traumatic time and season of his life, he comes in, and they start feeding him what the king wants them to eat. So this is the bacon. I mean, this is the thick bacon. This is good stuff, right? And Daniel says no. Because now, we're New Testament people. We're not under the food laws. I want to be really clear about that because we're pro-bacon. But anyway, they were under the food laws. That was a mark of distinction for the Jewish people. I think there were health reasons for some of this. But Daniel, who's been dragged from his home, he's in exile, and he puts his foot down. He's like, I'm not going to break the food laws. He risked his life to to God's food law. I think most of us would think, not that big a deal, right? But Daniel was a man of obedience. And when you look at his life, he's one of the greats. You see him obedient in what we might view as the little things and the big things. And that's the kind of person that when the king says, you can't pray to anybody else for 30 days, that goes back to his room, opens the windows that whoever wants to see will see, and he gets down on his knees just like he always does three times a day and prays to the Lord of Israel. Everyday obedience. That is a beautiful gift for God. You have somebody on your Christmas list that's hard to get them something? You know, they seem to have everything. I mean, it's hard to give God a gift. He has everything, literally. He owns everything. Give him obedience. He loves that gift. It's beautiful. It's powerful. Some of you are in the military or used to be military. In the military, you know, back to Patton's thinking, I mean, you don't, when you're under fire, you don't have discussions. If the commander gives an order, you charge towards the hill. You don't vote on it. You don't debate it. You charge the hill. You do what you're told. And we're in a spiritual war with the commander, and we are to be people of obedience. And obedience is not about control. It's for our good. Many of you are parents or grandparents, And when you see children, you give them commands, not just to control them. That's not the goal. It's to protect them. It's to help them. Maybe you go on vacation and you're given a hotel room and you're four stories up. And your little kid finds that, oh, you have a little porch. And he goes out on the porch and starts to climb the rails on the porch. You're like, stop. That's not you trying to control your child. You're trying to save your child. And we see the commands of God, we need to see them in that kind of way as a loving parent trying to offer us the best life. Now, Christianity, please don't misunderstand me, is not just a set of rules. It is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But understand, in a relationship with little old us and our maker and creator, guess what? There's going to be some commands. There's going to be some rules that we need to follow an answer to. And if we, you know, if we say we love him and we don't obey him, it just doesn't, it 
doesn't cut it. Some of your parents again. Imagine little Susie and she's seven years old and you go into Susie's room and her room is an absolute disaster and you're like, Susie, clean up the room. I'm going to come back in a half hour. I want the room clean. She nods. You come back in a half hour and Susie has grabbed a couple of the little girls in the neighborhood and they're sitting in a circle on the floor and they're discussing your command to clean up the room. But the room's still a pigsty. And little Susie's like, well, but we're talking about it. We even looked at the Greek word about this and all of that. You know, God has told us, help the poor, forgive those who hurt you. You know, he's told us to do some things. And while I value study, and God does too, we need to act. Do not just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. That's what James says. And obedience matters to God. Achan, in the Old Testament, when they took Jericho, they were told, don't take anything. That is like a, uh, the spoil is for God. It's like a tithe to God. It's the first conquest in the promised land. And what does Achan do? He steals some stuff. He doesn't think anybody will notice. And I'll never forget, I was a teenager sitting in a church, and this pastor one time, he said, but Achan was mistaken. And I always remembered that. Achan was, he didn't get away with it. He paid with his life for his disobedience. We see Aaron's two sons, they offered unauthorized fire. I don't know exactly what that means, but it means that God told them how to offer sacrifices. They were priests, they were trained, they were supposed to do this a certain way, and they disobeyed God, and they paid with their lives. And you're like, oh, well, those are Old Testament examples. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. God struck them down for lying to the Holy Spirit, to the apostle Peter. Obedience matters to God. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, he says this, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So, you know that government that's opposing Christians somewhere? Don't fear them. Because they, all they can do is kill you. As serious as that is, fear God. Because he can change the direction of your eternity Jesus says in John 15, 14, says, you are my friends if you do what I command. This whole, yeah, I'm a Christian, I self-identify as a Christian, but I do what I want. I watch what I want. I speak the way I want. I live the way I want. I exercise my sexuality the way I want. I am the master. Then don't say you love Jesus. Because you don't. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. Jesus even says, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. You know what that means? That means obedience, even if it costs you your life. Your life in the here and now. Obey him to that level. One of the amusing stories that comes from history, it was the Welsh Revival, early 1900s. And 
So many of people came to Christ, and a lot of them were minors, that when they came to Christ, their language changed. They cussed all the time. And these minors that worked with these mules and donkeys that hauled out the coal and the, the different things, um, once they converted to Christ, they dropped that colorful language, and the mules didn't know how to respond. They had to get all new mules and train them with the now Christian conversations and commands. I just thought that was interesting and amusing. And so we're to change, whether it's our speech, whether it's our actions, whether it's our entertainment choices. And obedience is not just duty, it is showing love to God. Jim Elliott, famous missionary who gave his life to share the gospel with an unreached people group, had a prayer that I like. He said this. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milestone, a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork in the road that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Be such a person of integrity and obedience and holiness and righteousness that when people interact with you, when they see your compassion, when they see your truth-telling, when they see your mercy, that, and, and you talk to them about Jesus Christ, that you're a fork in the road. That they have to make a decision because they have been impacted by the real thing. By a person who reveres and respects the holy God who created us and provides for us and rules over us. The big idea this morning is this. Revere God, worship his person, and obey his principles. Revere God, worship his person, and obey his principles. This is our call. Now let me tell you, if you're honest... If you're humble enough to have that posture of honesty, you know that when you see that call, revere God, worship his person, obey his principles, you know I'm not going to do that perfectly. And so this call brings forth in us a primal cry. And the primal cry is we need Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's just what we celebrated at the Lord's Supper time. Only through Christ, only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we be people who revere God, worship his person, and obey his principles with great consistency. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for who you are. Lord, this Thanksgiving weekend, Lord, let us not just be people who are grateful for your good gifts, though they are many, and bring us happiness and excitement and joy. Lord, help us to be grateful for you, the fullness of who you are, your majesty, how indescribable you are. Lord, I pray that you have weight in our lives. May our lives reflect and point to your glory. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.